This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Harsh words were expressed this past week by the Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital over the handling of the COVID second wave by Premier Doug Ford and his team. Dr. Michael Warner posted a video saying he's concerned that the Premier is not implementing proper restrictions as we see daily case numbers steadily climb. Warner also wonders why the Premier's not released information on who's advising him at the command table, with the exception of Dr. David Williams, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, and Dr. Barbara Yaffe, Associate Medical Officer of Health. For reaction on Dr. Warner's comments, Jane Brown spoke with University of Ottawa epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dionandon and NDP health critic Frau Jelena. This is something that I have heard from a long time. This is something that I have questioned the Minister of Health. My leader, Andrea Horvath, has questioned the Premier about the same thing. Who is sitting around a decision-making table? I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, transparency is key for people to have trust. And right now, because we don't know who is giving him advice, we don't know if uh, Premier Ford is following that advice, then the trust is eroded. And once you don't have trust, it's really hard to motivate people to follow directives that are not always very popular. And my leader, Andrea, asked again this morning, who sits at the decision-making table? They talked about how important it was to be transparent and how important it was to keep people's confidence and refused to tell us who sits at the table except for Dr. Williams, which we already know, and Dr. Yaffe. The, uh, Dr. Williams is the Chief Medical Officer of Health. Dr. Yaffe is the Assistant Chief Medical Officer of Health. And Dr. Heyer, who was the coroner and now has a role to play. That's it. We don't know who sits around that table. Is it possible, Frost, that it is just the three individuals? No, um, we've heard enough rumors <laughs> uh, about uh, other people giving advice, uh, but never been able to verify that rumor. Uh, but we know that it's a bigger table than three. Let's go to Dr. Ray Dianandon now, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Ray, you heard Dr. Warner's complaints. What are your thoughts? My first thought is from a 2007 paper that I'm often citing that talked about the lessons we learned from the first SARS epidemic. And that paper landed on three lessons. And one of them was transparency is everything. And we've learned nothing from that epidemic, it seems, because transparency is important in terms of what we know from the science, what we don't know, what we're struggling with, and also who is making the decisions. So he's right. Uh, I would like to know who's making the decisions, who's advising the decision makers. It's nice to know that there are a few medical professionals there. I'd like to know there are some scientific professionals because that's not the same thing. And also, if he is being unduly influenced by industry uh, and whether economic concerns are having a greater weight than they should in making decisions that should be driven by science more so. So it is important um, in a liberal democracy like ours, I think it's important that all citizens and taxpayers 
know these details. Dr. Ray, who should be around that command table? I'm not sure which individuals, but the professions, obviously medical professionals, obviously mathematical and statistical professionals, because this is not just a medical issue. It's a, 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 a data-driven pandemic. Um, the, the economic concerns must be there as well. And also the, the industrial concerns. So what is possible to scale up? What is possible to, to change in terms of human behavior and workplace management and behaviors? So there's room for a diversity of people, but we need to know what, what kind of viewpoints are there. Um, selfishly, I'd, of course, want to see epidemiologists present, and I'm not sure there are any. And, and if you were sitting at the table, how would your expertise help guide the premier? A little thing. David Williams said the other day that there's a 36% false positive rate, which is false. That's not true. That's a misunderstanding of statistics. So that kind of thing would have been mitigated earlier on. How we use testing capacity can be driven by different kinds of professions. A test is not a test is not a test. They have different roles to play in society. A new antigen test, for example, will be rolled out differently than the PCR test. So it takes a, a certain profession to have that insight, a laboratory scientist or a statistician. So there's nuance in how we think about this pandemic. It's not just about what, um, you know, which businesses to close, which hospitals to surge. It's also which tests to buy, which, um, which models to look at, what are the frailties of the models, and so forth. There's, there's a lot that goes on here. University of Ottawa epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dionandon and NDP health critic Fran Jelena in conversation with Jane Brown on Wednesday. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. The highly anticipated first debate between the incumbent President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger Joe Biden was messy, filled with verbal insults and lacking in substance. Trump, as expected, took the schoolyard bully approach throughout. Biden seemed to stand his ground for much of the assaults thrown at him, grinning and shaking his head in disbelief during most of Trump's comments. Biden also called Trump names, clown, fool, and telling the U.S. president to shut up. Also noticeable was moderator Chris Wallace's inability to tame either side. Instead, he could be seen repeatedly pleading with Trump to stop talking. Jane Brown was joined by three American university professors to get their takes on the debate. Dr. Melissa Miller, professor of political science, Bowling Green State University, Professor Michael Flam, Department of History at Ohio Wesleyan University, and Dr. Chris Cooper, political science professor at Western Carolina University. I think this is the kind of debate that makes us question whether we should be doing debates at all. I think it also... Uh, draws some hard questions about the ways in which we conduct debates um, and what we're really getting out of these as Americans. Are Americans better equipped to make a decision on the presidency after last night? I'm not convinced that the answer is yes. Professor Flam, your initial comments on last night? Uh, in my view, uh, President Trump gave the most uh, disturbing and degrading public performance of any U.S. president in modern American history. Um, and I do agree uh, with Dr. Cooper. Um, it's not clear why moving forward uh, we should bother having more presidential debates. Just in this campaign or in general? Uh, in this campaign, with this set of candidates under uh, the rules that were apparently negotiated uh, by both campaigns prior to the debate. Dr. Miller, your thoughts after watching? I agree with everything that's been said, and I would just tell you that many Americans 
uh, just woke up sort of in despair and disappointment about what they saw last night. What an enormous missed opportunity to educate that small slice of Americans who live in key battleground states like those that the three of us panelists are sitting in um, to get real information about the real substantive differences between these candidates. If you were one of those 2 to 4% of undecided voters who actually tuned in last night, you probably didn't make it past the first 15 minutes. It was almost unwatchable. So, Dr. Cooper, in light of that undecided factor, are those people going to stay away from the polls or will they continue to do research and maybe try to give it another shot for for debate number two? You know, I think we'll we'll find out. Right. Um, You know, I agree with everything that's been said. We're talking about a very, very small number of undecided voters. Those are not the people who are most likely to watch the debates in the first place. So I think the undecided voters are likely the ones who got up this morning and saw the sort of amplification of the debate and might actually be seeing the reporting on the debate and, and didn't actually watch the debate itself. And obviously the reporting has been uh, has accurately highlighted um, what a disastrous night it was for American politics. So whether they will tune in in the future, we'll see. And conventional wisdom would say that it could depress turnout that it could um, uh, further erode our faith in our democratic institutions, institutions that haven't been faring so well in recent years. Dr. Flam, is the decorum or lack thereof that we saw last night, is that reflective of the American people? You know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I do think that there has been an erosion of civility and tolerance uh, when it comes to political difference. Um, there's a lot of research showing that more and more Americans are sorting themselves out into communities and neighborhoods that tend to view politics from one perspective or another. Um, but I would like to think that ordinary Americans are still finding ways to behave better uh, than what we saw last night from President Trump. I want to ask all three of you, we'll go around the table, what are the handlers for Trump and Biden telling their candidates today? Were in terms of Trump, uh, Dr. Cooper, do they like the schoolyard bully approach? It's hard to say what they want. I'll say what I think they should want, um, uh, which is for him to dial it back some. Um, politically, I don't think that was a smart play last night to get Biden on his toes. Maybe that was smart. But the reality is that the far right is going to support Donald Trump anyway. I think you'd be much better off moderating his position a little and moderating his tone and giving uh, the average conservative voter who isn't extreme and doesn't like the kind of racist rhetoric he put out last night a a reason to vote for him and and an excuse to vote for him. Um, As far as Biden, I mean, I think it's he's going to have to find a way to cut through the noise and articulate um, a clear message about who he is and what he stands for. And obviously that was extremely difficult last night. Um, the moderator had a tough job, but but was not able to, to wrangle Trump. So uh, I don't think either... I don't think either candidate's handlers should be very happy with the way that debate turned out last night. Frankly, I don't really think any American should wake up this morning and be happy about how that debate turned out last night. No. I think uh, kind of worldwide, the Russians might be the only ones, as Professor Miller pointed out, who are happy today. 
Dr. Chris Cooper, political science professor at Western Carolina University, Professor Michael Flam, Department of History at Ohio Wesleyan University, and Dr. Melissa Miller, professor of political science, Bowling Green State University. Following this conversation, members of the U.S. Presidential Debates Commission announced there would be changes to the format to provide more structure for the next two debates. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. You may be wondering, why are we not in lockdown here in Ontario when the daily case numbers are as high or higher than they were on some days back in the spring? To clear up any confusion over the second wave, Jane spoke with Dr. Dion Alleman, University of Toronto professor and expert on pandemic modelling, and Dr. Barry Pakes, professor at the U of T's Dalla School of Public Health. I think some of the confusion is just about the name uh, of, you know, a wave. So, you know, we, we had certainly a large number of cases back in the spring and it went down over the summer and, and we've always known it was going uh, back up. And the thing about a wave is it's got two sides, the going up and the going down. And and maybe some of the reluctance to think of it as a wave is because we, we don't exactly know when we're going to be on the other side of it. Um, and, and sometimes it's a little bit hard to know when we're when we're in it, maybe two weeks ago or even a week ago, it was hard to know how high or what direction we were going in. And I think it's pretty clear that we're in the second wave right now. So there shouldn't be any confusion about that. We have medical definitions for a lot of things in public health, and and we don't necessarily have one for, for a wave. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it'd be useful to sort of, you know, go in depth into why uh, we're considering it in Toronto and not necessarily in Peel. I think the important thing is that we are most certainly seeing an increase in cases and in many different settings. And what that means, as everyone really knows, is that we're going to have to be rolling back, or I prefer to think about it as, um, you know, targeting certain interventions going forward that, that are going to make things look a little bit more like it did um, you know, back in the spring, but not entirely. Dr. Pakes, your colleague has joined us, Dr. Dion Alleman, professor at the University of Toronto and expert on pandemic modeling. Your take on what's leading to the confusion around the second wave and its seriousness? Well, I think a lot of the confusion has to do with the fact that the province doesn't really seem to be taking very rapid and stringent measures to contain uh, the growth that we're seeing. So it's easy for someone who's just, you know, looking at uh, what the province is doing to say, well, the province isn't doing all that much, so clearly things must not be that bad. Um, or they're, maybe they're looking at uh, only uh, the number of deaths and seeing that the number of deaths uh, isn't really increasing all that much and thinking, therefore, things must not actually be that bad. But certainly that's not the case. You can look at uh, the um, the infections or the percent positivity and our testing rates and see that we are very clearly in the throes of the second wave. Is the confusion about criteria leading to sort of this general questioning of what exactly is going on with the second wave? Yeah, I think that that could also be part of it. Um, And I also think that the lack of established criteria um, also makes it difficult for the province to, uh, to know when to put their foot down, to know when a line has been crossed, when to roll back from phase three to phase two to phase one. Um, you know, it, it's very easy to get caught up in the inertia of everything. Like we've opened things up, schools are back open, people are feeling a sense of normalcy. Um, it's very easy to just want to kind of turn a blind eye to what's happening with the infections because, you know, people are, you know, resuming uh, in a lot of ways uh, normalcy in their lives and you don't want to just take that away. You want to say, well, let's wait and see what happens tomorrow or tomorrow. Or what if we just say uh, that uh, indoor gatherings have to be a little bit smaller. Let's try that. Whereas if 
you know, there were very clear established criteria, then the province would know when these trigger points have been hit and they would be able to immediately um, just jump in and change something rather than being conflicted by, you know, lots of uh, competing interests. Dr. Alleman, since you are an expert on pandemic modeling, my final question here to you, what is your forecast for this virus? Well, you know, ultimately, it's really hard to know because uh, I think uh, the first caller who called in um, since I joined, um, you kind of hit, hit it on the head. Like, it all comes down to personal accountability. Like, if literally everybody in the province decides to start wearing a mask properly um, every time they're outside or, you know, within uh, within eyeshot of another person, um, then, you know, this whole thing could very quickly die down to very small, very manageable numbers. On the other hand, if people continue to go to restaurants, because they're open, um, have indoor weddings because they're allowed, because they're at, uh, you know, so-called staffed uh, events, then uh, then things can things might stay out of control. You know, I mean, we, we need rules and policies in place, uh, you know, for the same reason why we have uh, rules against, you know, driving while under the influence, right? Everybody knows you're not supposed to do it, but some people are careless or, reckless. And uh, and it's those sorts of people that these rules are in place for. And if there's enough of them in a pandemic, then things can really take off like we're seeing now. Dr. Dion Alleman, U of T professor and expert on pandemic modeling, and Dr. Barry Pakes, professor at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health. This is Zoomer Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. How can we ensure the second wave is not like the first in Ontario's long-term care homes? With long-term care the focus of National Seniors Day October 1st, Jane put that question to Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Jane Medis, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. Well, obviously, it's always very serious when we're seeing um, infections in homes. Um, in certain areas, certainly it is extremely serious. And I think that we have to um, figure out how, what kind of precautions we're going to take um, in those areas versus the other areas. And I, my understanding, and I can be corrected because I haven't seen anything from the ministry or the chief medical officer of health, but I believe that the restrictions are only in potentially Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel, although we haven't seen anything in writing yet. So as far as I know, the other kinds of visits can take place outside, but Donna may also have other information I don't have. Right. That, that is the indication we're getting, that okay. it's GTA nursing homes and mm-hmm. Ottawa nursing homes for essential caregivers and visitors mm-hmm. as of Monday. Uh, Donna, what about you in terms of the seriousness of the situation? Well, you know, as we saw in, in the first wave, our most vulnerable uh, residents um, really are at risk. And we know uh, from what happened across Europe and certainly uh, what we saw in the spring, people over the age of 80 in long-term care are, are highly vulnerable. We know what the root causes are. Those hot spots like Ottawa and Toronto, um, certainly the, the buildings, and we, we're still in the same buildings, uh, critical staffing crisis. And I have to say, Jane, like our staff are so fearful of what's to come and they yeah. want to do everything they can to support these our residents and our and our family visitors uh, but but they are so diminished they're exhausted they're anxious in some cases traumatized you know the mental health well-being of our residents of our families and our staff is has really been compromised uh, by that first wave so we're worried for this wave about that 
I, I believe it. Is there any reassurance at all among those in long-term care homes, the employees, that uh, the importance that Premier Ford seems to be putting on long-term care over the last couple of days, and again today he's supposed to be making an announcement, does that offer any kind of comfort? You know, certainly we're encouraged um, as, as an association and in, in, in also in conversations uh, with, with other Jane on the line here uh, and our family and resident councils in Advantage Ontario as well. We've, we've been advocating and certainly um, a, a number of weeks ago, a number of us put out a, a joint letter on, on behalf of the sector, you know, trying to really push the, the government uh, action plan forward. And certainly we're seeing that come forward this week with the commitment around personal protective equipment uh, for all the homes uh, in the province, certainly um, uh, providing some infection prevention and control capacity building in the system. We, we know that that's so paramount with uh, with this virus because it, it is so virulent. Um, and certainly um, we continue to uh, advocate for ongoing partnerships with hospitals uh, that we had in the, in the first wave as well as ensuring physician presence on site. So if we can get those pieces in place and at least start to get them out, especially in these hot spots, um, hopefully we, you know, our hope is, and, and we need to do this together, uh, that will allow us uh, to recruit, retain and recruit new staff to, to build out our workforce and, and protect our residents uh, and our and our essentially set essential family visitors. Jane, what about you, the $540 million that the Premier has announced towards long-term care? Will that be enough to make a positive impact and at this point of the second wave when we're already seeing dozens of outbreaks? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the money for PPE, the money um, potentially for uh, more staff, I think that is all very important. Um, we can't do it without that money. And so that certainly is a good start. I think that the issues that we see are that there still doesn't appear to be a cohesive plan. Um, you know, they had the summer to do that. I still don't see that where, you know, you know, they announced on Tuesday this issue on visitors and we still don't really know what that means. They haven't actually put any documentation out to direct um, the sector to know what that actually means. And this has been an ongoing problem where we're getting no messages, mixed messages from, from, from the ministry and from the government. And I think that the other problem is, is that you know, where we, we sort of take very broad strokes. So, you know, we put, you know, 72,000 people into basically, um, you know, uh, confinement um, in March, all, all the people that live in long-term care. And it wasn't necessary for everyone, I don't think, um, and neither was it particularly legal. And the, the stress and the effect on people's mental health of the residents who live in those homes, as well as families who couldn't visit, was astronomical. And I don't think that we can discount that. And we really have to put into place plans where we're balancing all of that. And I just don't think that the government is it has the plans to do that. Jane Medes, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I'm Bob Komsik, and you're listening to The Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who's concerned about messaging around the new visitor restrictions in long-term care. 
My mother is in long-term care, and I've got a wonderful relationship with the director. She was sending me something, and uh, I, t- I sent her back an email saying, I'm very confused. I get this from, you know, they have their uh, uh, their bulletins that they send out. I said, I get this, I get that, I get the other. Like, where am I? So she wrote back and said to me, we are going to consider you an essential caregiver. Yeah. Uh, you fill out this documentation and, you know, you'll be able to come when you want, as long as you want, as often as you want. In the interim, I had been speaking to a social worker and I said, you know, it's driving me a little bit bananas because my mother's got dementia and uh, I don't know if she knows who I am in sunglasses and uh, a mask. <laughs> like, it's been a while. Right. So... She said to me, you know what, Helen? You're not the only one. Every single home, every single person I speak to who has someone in the senior's home, and the homes could even be owned by the same companies, they're all different. No two homes are are, um, interpreting what they're getting from the government in the same way. So it is mass confusion. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Compson. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.